Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. All right, welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. My name is Malcolm White. I am your host today, and we're in the studio with a gaggle of good friends here. We've got Kevin Farrell twisting and turning the knobs. We've got Ronzo Shapiro, who said not to introduce him, sitting in the corner. And my good, ben, my old and good friend, Jonathan Johnny Miles. Welcome back, Johnny. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to have you back in Mississippi. Good to be back. I'm probably the highest-ranking official you'll meet during your your visit here, and so I, I want to so. officially welcome you to the state on behalf of all of its 2.9 million citizens. Thank you, man. Good to have you back. So Jonathan has uh, a new book uh, that is the primary reason for the visit, but we'll talk about that as time goes on. But uh, mostly he's just an old friend of mine from the Oxford days who I had the great pleasure to run around with and hang out with some back in that. You tell me the time period, the Oxford. Yeah, it was the, the, the 90s mostly. <laughs> the yeah. 90s. Yeah. <laughs> so I know because I have read a little bit about what other people have written about you that you uh, are from Ohio. Yeah. Talk about yeah. Ohio and where you're actually from and how long you stayed there. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, grew up in Arizona. So went huh? Midwest, Southwest. Uh, and then came to Oxford when I was 18, uh, chasing chasing blues. But you came to Oxford on your own. Did your parents make the, the Ohio-Arizona move? The parents made the uh, the Ohio-Arizona move, and then I left early, um, ran away from home at 17, and, and went back to Ohio to live with oh. a sister there. Okay. And uh, and it was, it was during that time that I... Uh, fell head over heels with blues with the living blues you tell the story of seeing the living blues in the record store and yeah my sister told me uh i didn't want to go to college i thought i just wanted to play guitar and uh and she was adamant that i go to college and i kept refusing and i finally found living blues magazine in a record shop on prospect avenue in uh in cleveland and i was reading through it and um you know, at the time, pre-internet, any scrap or any bit of information you had was so precious. Right. right? Uh, but I noticed it was it was uh, published at a place called the University of Mississippi. So I brought it home and I said, "All right, you want me to go to college?" I pointed to it. I said, "I'm gonna go to that one." Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. So uh, this is a, a little off. The, did you do any hitchhiking in your day? A little bit. I don't know why that. A little was, bit. I used to do a lot, and I was yeah. just curious if it. We're different, a little different generation. I don't know if. Yeah, by my time, I think it had gotten much more difficult to yeah. get a ride. The last um, time, so it I, wasn't very productive. Right. The, the the last time I did it was from Oxford to Jackson, and uh, I got out somewhere along the way, and I vowed I'd never get in another stranger's car on the side <laughs> of the road. I, I thought these two people were going to kill each other and me. <laughs> Just this collateral damage. <laughs> and this was yeah. one of those typical things where they finally stop at a rest to get gas. And I said, well, I got to go to the restroom. And I went through the back door of that place and ran out into the woods <laughs> until I was sure they had driven off. I mean, these people were dangerous. <laughs> so uh, you, you got a new book. You're out touring around. Uh, you grew up, in, in, as, as we touched on a little bit there, in Ohio and Arizona. And then you made your way to Mississippi, in, you say, in the 90s? 89 is, 89 when, I, 89 you, is when I landed. Did you actually enroll at the university at that I point? I did, yeah. Okay, yeah. so you came straight away into straight the university away. system. Yep, yep. And 
studied Southern studies or some such? Uh, I did. What? I think I was a, oh, it was a long time ago. It was a, I think I was an English major, Southern studies minor. Uh-huh. Uh, just took as, uh, as many blues classes as I could. Uh, and, uh, and then happened into uh, a class with Barry Hanna, hmm. which I'm embarrassed to admit, I, at the time, I didn't know who Barry Hanna was. I'd had a, and we can talk about this later, but as a kid, I, I did want to write, but then, you know, hit adolescence and, and found uh, guitars and motorcycles uh-huh. more interesting. Um, but I thought, all right, I'm going to take this class because uh, I thought it might be easy. <laughs> And it may have been. I don't yeah, know. And uh, <laughs> it's funny because I, I wrote my first story for Barry. Well, two things. There's one, just being in Barry's presence was so electrifying mm. and exhilarating. Just listening to him talk about literature, um, it was just it was it was just intoxicating. Um, and I loved being around him. Loved hearing him talk. I'd never heard anybody talk about books and writing that way. Um, and it was just. It was just so pyrotechnic. But I wrote my first uh, story for him, and he read it aloud to the class. And he said, you know, in that very way, he said, well, this, you know, this is a pretty good story. This could be, this could be published in the Harvard Review, and they'd pay $50 for this. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't have $50. Right. So I was really excited about this idea that you could. And so I went immediately from the class when it was over to the, to the Ole Miss Library, and uh, try to find the address of this Harvard Review, which at the time didn't exist. Uh, so uh, I never got the fifty dollars for that story, uh-huh. but I do think that that was uh, uh, Barry was kind of launched me into this uh, uh, into this idea, this this reunion with writing that I had. And and so you continued to go to college, and did you take any more Barry's classes? Or I, was it I just well, the so one? I, I left college because they wouldn't let me take Barry's classes anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> Apparently, there's a limit on how many times you can take the same class. Ah. And when they told me that, no, you, you know, I can't remember how many times I took it, but when they said you can't enroll in this one anymore, oh. uh, I said, uh, okay, well, I'm done. That's it. I'm done with college. So you, you wrapped up your education I had, right then I and had there. learned what I needed to okay. learn. Yeah. <laughs> so you, but you got a job uh, working at the Oxford Eagle. Was that after you got out of college? Yeah, that was a ways after. Ways uh, after. What happened between they won't let me take Barry's class anymore and I'm actually going to write for the local paper? I played music around Oxford some, uh-huh. um, various bands, and uh, lived in a 12 by 30 shack up near Abbeville and read a lot and wrote a lot. Hmm. Um, at the time, I went to work for the Oxford Eagle. Right before that, I was working as a bartender at a restaurant called Nacho Mamas. And uh, and I was pretty good with the margarita machine, but uh, I saw- You mean it, drinking uh, from the yeah. margarita machine? <laughs> yeah, I operated it and oh, uh, okay. tested it. Uh, but I saw an ad for a reporter, um, and I think it paid $6 an hour, hmm. which was a little more than I was making you know, at the margarita machine. So. Uh, so I went to work, again, sort of thinking, well, this might be something uh, not too hard, um, but instantly fell uh, fell in love with it. Was was uh, Jim Dees there at the time? Jim Dees hadn't been there yet. Had not yet. Yeah. Okay. Um, that that came a little later. Later. In the, yeah. in the weird era. Bruce Newman? Bruce Newman, of course. Bruce yeah. Newman's been there, he's, I believe, since 1923. First published. If yeah. I'm not mistaken, <laughs> I should check that, but I think it's The mascot. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so eventually you did begin journalism. You began to, to write for the paper so that yeah. you were able to actually uh, stop making margaritas and put yes. pencil to pen, yeah. pen to paper, I yeah. should say. For a writer, for and I was writing fiction at the time, and I think what, what that 
taught me it was two things. One, the discipline. You had to come in every day and mm. write your 15 inches of copy, and there was no excuses. There was no artistic, uh, you know, precious <laughs> excuse. There was no muse. Uh, the other, that I think was more important for me, is journalism gave me this access to people's lives, to people in extremists, to people, uh, you know, to be a journalist, you have this all-access pass, and you can ask questions of people. Mm. Um, in their most fraught moments, and and because you have a notebook in hand, they will, they will answer <laughs> the questions. Um, but you know, for being a twenty three year old, you know, um, who never was very interested in writing autobiographically, mm. I just felt this this was my access to just uh, to, to to every color in life, and right. uh, and I still to this day I still keep a toe in journalism because it's what. You know, this is this is how I do my research. And from there, uh, you were you were in Oxford uh, until until you got married. Is, uh, I got is, married. Uh, no, but I stayed a little ways after, and we left in two thousand and one. Two thousand and one. I guess when Richard Holworth became mayor, right? That's right. That's not so. why I left. <laughs> well, I, I call that <laughs> the end of an era. <laughs> the era of Oxford that is most intriguing to me is the day the Hoka opened yeah. to the day that Richard got elected mayor. To me, that's cafe society yeah. in Oxford, and yeah. that's the thing that I, I was deeply fortunate to be to be there for <laughs> most a chunk of that. In. Yeah. So, uh, at some point, you met Larry Brown. Yeah. And and was that after Barry? That was after Barry. So that I think it's that same story I mentioned that Barry liked uh, that did not get published in the non-existent Harvard <laughs> Review. Uh, was published in a little alt weekly newspaper in Oxford called South Fine. Huh. And uh, it was back page, uh, they did back page fiction and, and, uh, and the story. And Larry uh, came up to me in the city grocery bar. The bureau. The bureau. Uh, he hated me telling the story, by the way. But, <laughs> and uh, and he, he, he said, I read your story, and I liked it. And he asked me if I wanted to go downstairs to have dinner with him and his wife, Mary Annie. And, uh, and of course, I said, yes, yeah. so we go downstairs. Uh, and at some point during the dinner... Um, Larry noticed uh, there was a table in the center of the restaurant, and there were some people there that he had a, a bit of a grudge against. <laughs> and he had a little bit to drink that night. We were having some fun. But he, uh, he, he put his napkin down, said, y'all excuse me for a second, and walked over to that table and stepped up on it and started dancing <laughs> on the table, on their food, you know, just kind of grinding his boots into the plates. And... Uh, and poor Mary Annie is sort of was, is hiding her head She's like, Here in her we hands, go again. And, and I'm just looking up and thinking, I want to hang out with this guy <laughs> forever. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, and we quickly, uh, you know, we, we quickly bonded. And it's funny because in retrospect, I mean, I didn't think I was getting an education from Larry at the time. I just thought we were two guys who liked to ride around and drink beer and talk about books the same way other people talk about football and fishing and, and what have you. Um, but in, when I look back on it, you know, when we would do those those rides, those low rides through Lafayette County, and he would be pointing out, you know, that's the house that I set the scene in Joe in, or, you know, the people that live there, I based this. He was showing me the raw ingredients for fiction, right? Mm -hmm. He was showing me you know, uh, how you cook them, um, those ingredients, how you season them and how they become, how they become a novel. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was certainly, you know, 
that that was my MFA. It was riding around in that truck. <laughs> Better than the degree that you were wasting your time <laughs> right. at the university. Yeah. So uh, you didn't write uh, you didn't write fiction for a while. You you were a journalist even when you yeah. left, right? You, yeah. You worked for the New York Times, right? Right. right. You, were, you had a columnist, right? Yep. Yep. Which is pretty cool. How does one leap from Oxford to a column at the New York Times without a whole lot of well, there the, in the interim was a lot of magazine work. Uh-huh. So um, when I went to New York, um, then became a contract writer for various magazines, uh, Men's okay. Journal magazine, and then details later. Um, so I was doing a lot of, of magazine work, which I loved. I was covering everything from presidential politics to you know celebrity profiles to to true crime, um, and having a having a great time traveling around and. Were you living in the city then? No, living. We had too many dogs. Okay. We moved, uh, we moved you from never lived in the city. No, no, we couldn't because we, we moved from Mississippi with four dogs. Oh, okay. And when I was moving, uh, I called people in New York and knew, and I said, "Hey, I'm, I'm moving there." I said, "It's great." I said, "I got four dogs. Where can I live?" And they said, "Canada." <laughs> <laughs> so, so we we so you moved to New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, right. So we're always in the we're always in the city's you know outer orbit, um, yeah. but which I'm actually happy about. Yeah. Well, before we leave Oxford, you know, we, yeah. you, you never really leave Oxford. No. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to listen to some music, and we're going to come back. We'll talk about writing and uh, globetrotting uh, and uh, all about the new book. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. I also serve as the director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, which I am honored to be able to do, to serve the people, the 2.9 million people who proudly call themselves my neighbors, my family, and my friends, and my fellow Mississippians. Uh, what a great gig. My guest today is Jonathan Miles. Welcome back, Johnny. Thank you. Glad to have you. Uh, Johnny Miles, if you don't mind, I'll yeah. call you Johnny. It's, yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can call me Johnny. <laughs> uh, is Back in Mississippi, after years of being away up in New York, New Exile. Jersey, exiled yeah. into the outer outer uh, rims of our country, but but he's got a brand new book uh, called "Anatomy of a Miracle." It has a subtitle, which we'll, uh, yeah, we'll let you share that in a minute. Yeah. But prior to this, "Dear American Airlines," the first first novel, first novel, yeah. won't not. Second novel. Second novel. And then there's a book on wild game, outdoor. Cookery. Yeah, cookery. The wild Chef. The Wild Chef. A few years ago. Yeah. Talk a little bit about The Wild Chef. We'll talk about the miracle in a minute. Uh, yeah, that's the outlier, I guess, in my, in yeah, my canon, I like it. right? Um, it's the I've Bruce been, Browning years. That, that's the truth. Um, <laughs> I've been writing. Uh, I started out, actually, my first magazine work was outdoor writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first, uh, first national magazine piece was about William Faulkner and his hunting. Um, traditions. And uh, so I've always done outdoor writing. And uh, in 2004, I became the what they call the Wild Chef, uh, the columnist for Field and Stream magazine. Right. So I've been... Uh, I've been I grew you know, up on Field and Stream. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> so um, I, you know, I've been giving recipes um, and writing about game cookery for uh, yeah, 14 years now. So in 2013, they, they gathered a bunch of stuff up into a book and... and um, yeah, and did, I enjoy that. Did you do your own uh, recipe testing for the book? Oh, yeah, always. And, yeah. and for the columns? Yeah, and for the columns. And how is that different? Like, I, I'm a home cook. Yeah. My my brother was a, a cook who had recipes. Uh, how do you 
how does that work go when you're trying to convert it to a, you know to the people at home it's actually a maddening process it's it is, it be is not fun um <laughs> you know it, it, it the cooking because you're 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 timing everything i have timers all over the kitchen because every step has to be timed. you know how long those onions are supposed right, to saute right. and then and you absolutely can't add you know uh you can't taste it and say, oh, it needs a little bit of this without writing it down. So it's uh, it's actually not fun. <laughs> but uh, but the eating it's it is. It's a living. Yeah, but it's a, yeah, it's a living. Yeah, if it's if it's fun, it wouldn't be all work. Right. right. But it does sound like a lot of work. And Robert St. John tells me all the time how tedious that is. It, it, it is. It's it not is like just putting yeah. a bunch of stuff in a pan and seeing what happens, right. which is the way I cook. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's let's talk about the new book, the the anatomy of of the miracle of a miracle uh it's set in biloxi yeah. you've got a vet T- walk us through just kind of the story sure the uh the subtitle uh is the true story uh, and true has an asterisk uh, that leads to a novel true story of a paralyzed veteran a mississippi convenience store a vatican investigation and the spectacular perils of grace so the novel um concerns a 26 year old um man in Biloxi named Cameron Harris, who was paralyzed below the waist while serving in Afghanistan. And four years after he returns, his sister wheels him uh, down to a convenience store uh, near their home. And while she's inside buying Captain Crunch and some smokes, he uh, regains mobility. He stands from his wheelchair and takes a few steps and is no longer paralyzed. So the rest of the novel is various investigations into how and why this might have happened and follows the effects of this recovery on, of course, Cameron, on his family, um, on the owners of the convenience store who find themselves now in possession of a a sort of modern-day lords, mm-hmm. albeit one that sells beef jerky and beer and automotive <laughs> air fresheners, uh, on uh, his confounded physician, um, who is determined to find a, a medical explanation for this recovery, and and really on the world at large, as you know, various uh, as everyone tries to understand what happened, and various factions, ideological and otherwise, try to claim the story um, for their own purposes. Where on earth does an idea <laughs> like this come from? Uh, this one was, you know, I think so much of fiction begins with a question of what if. Mm-hmm. You know, what if this happened? What if this? What would happen next if this happened? And I think the, the the origins of this really was: what if something happened in our day, which we feel is so scrupulously mapped by science, where we where we we feel, um, you know, justly or not, that we have a handle uh, on things? What if something happened that just simply could not be explained? What would rush into that vacuum? Mm. You know. Um, and, you know, and how would we grapple with that? First, how would, first we turn to reality television. Well, of course, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, first it would be on social media, and, which and is what happens. And the Holy Roman Church. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a battle, really, in the novel between uh, faith and science, mm-hmm. um, you know, with both sides trying to get, trying to get a handle on this. And Cameron was not a uh, religious guy. He, 
he said it had nothing to do with prayer or faith or he says from what i could gather he never even really thought about recuperation no. this wasn't even on his mind no and this is one of the biggest things that he grapples with is his sense of not deserving this right, right. he didn't this isn't something he explicitly asked for um he didn't pray for it some other people prayed for him um and he didn't do anything his four years um you know mostly what he did was was play video games um and drink beer and he, he says that very uh very candidly that he, he just so for him it's a struggle to understand if this is a divine act why him right. and if it is what is he supposed to do with that grace you know what is it what is it what responsibilities does it what is it equip him for and what are its obligations and, and among the, the, the many things that happen in the aftermath of the miracle is that people come to him asking for him to pray for them, to share this thing that he doesn't even, of course, understand. Right, right. Which is, and he finds it very difficult um, because his faith is, is, you know, I think uh, Cameron's faith, you could probably say, is sort of secondhand faith that, that, mm -hmm. that uh, a lot of people have, where their parents maybe were very devout. Um, it's not that they believe or don't believe. It's just they don't give it much thought, you know. Quasi, uh, uh, I guess you would say, um, agnostic. Quasi, yeah, exactly, agnostic. exactly. They might yeah. go through the they might go through the paces. They might, you know, um, mm -hmm. they might go to church on, on <clears throat> Christmas or Easter, uh, but they don't spend a lot of time mm -hmm. just thinking about it. I think that's probably the best way to describe Cameron's faith. And then, you know, for these people to come to him and see him as a vessel, um, as a conduit uh, to the divine. It becomes very difficult for him to, to grapple with that because he doesn't feel sacred. He just feels restored. Right. Yeah. Now, will this be a series? Is this to be continued? Is there more about this character? Or is this it? No, Cameron? this is it. Uh, but it, it is strange the way your characters sometimes uh, almost wait around after <laughs> you finish the book and you look behind you and they're still waiting. You're like, what, what are we supposed to do now? There's certain characters... Certain characters you're, you're, you're sort of glad to be rid of. Uh, the narrator of my first novel, I was uh -huh. fine parting ways with him. <laughs> <Enough>. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, it always is a strange thing because they're, they're, they're still there and you can, you can see them sort mm. of. They're, they're still visible. So it's set in Biloxi. Yeah. Um, your wife is from the coast. She's from Hancock County? Uh, Long Beach. Long Beach. Yeah. Wrong. Uh, Ladner, though. Yeah, yeah, Lad yeah Ladner, the... <laughs> The coastiest of coast. <laughs> right, 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 right. So that's the reason that you're set in Biloxi is because you, your wife's family. And there's you part spend so of that. much time down there. Yeah, there's there's certainly part of that. It's funny because when you when you a lot of these decisions you make with fiction are so intuitive, they're gut, and and you can sort of reverse engineer the logic, you know, behind it. But it was it would just always seem that it had to be. Uh, set in Biloxi, but I can reverse engineer it by saying, I, you know, I knew that this had to be set somewhere where the recovery would be instantly um, apprehended as divine, hmm. as a miracle, and there would be, and of course, that would, you know, probably, you know, Flamery O'Connor called the South Christ haunted, and right. and uh, Mississippi is probably the the most Christ haunted right. of the Southern states. So that seemed um, apt, and. Uh, the Gulf Coast having the Catholic element, I knew that right. I wanted the Vatican um, to be involved um, because the Vatican actually does certify miracles. And I knew that would be an element. So this all sort of, um, you know, sort of funneled together to make 
to make the coast. And I do spend lots of time on the coast. Um, I, I was going to ask if when you were writing this that you found that you had to go to Biloxi to, like, get something right or to feel a certain passage? Or had you been there enough and you were able to sit in New Jersey and just write about Biloxi because you had been there so many times? No. I, I, once once I got the idea and, and was, was there, I, I did. I had to sort of... Uh, I had to figure out like a location scout, you know, for a film right. to go around. And uh, and my wonderful father-in-law at one point, I said, hey, would you, you know, would you mind taking me around? He said, sure, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to drive around and look at convenience stores. <laughs> and he, you know, I think he's sometimes already puzzled at <clears throat> what I do for yeah. a living anyway. But that's what we did. We just drove around the city of Biloxi looking at various convenience stores, going inside. And, and So uh, does this store actually exist? No. Is this like Jimmy Buffett's uh, The Mini Mart it's one day when I get rich, I'll pay the mini mart yeah. back. No. Yeah, this is the Busy Bee store. No. Uh, right under up. Division Street's made up. Made up. Made but up. Division Street is not Division made up. Street's not made up. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a lot. This this novel is sort of like a jello salad of fact and fiction. There's a lot <laughs> there's a lot of uh there's a lot of facts sort of suspended in the uh in the jello of the fiction. Now, your wife's family has a place down on is it Black Creek? Near Wiggins, Red yeah. Creek? Near Wiggins and Bla on Black Creek. Black Creek. Yeah. yeah, where Bruce and I once stopped That's right. in on one of our sojourns, That's uh, right. many sojourns. Is they still have Yeah, still, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we'll have forever. Yeah. I love it. That's and your father in law was a highway patrolman. Yes. Is that right? That's correct. Uh huh. Yeah. Nice people. Yeah. The Ladners. Yeah. It's yeah. They, yeah. Wonderful people. And the kids are all grown up now? Fourteen, twelve, and ten. Wow. Yeah. So what do I, they say when people say, what do your dad do? <laughs> you know, every, he cooks, but he measures yeah. everything, and there's timers all over the kitchen. I asked my I asked my oldest son years ago what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he, he gave some normal choice, and I said, would you, would you ever want to be a writer? And he said, oh, no, no, no. When I grow up, I want to work. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? So you're also on this journey uh, this week, uh, going to to go to Oxford and uh, be on the the roster of the conference on the book. Now you were living there when the conference on the book was, I was hatched. At the first one, yeah. So I was at the first one. You were at the first one. How do you feel like going back now to this thing and to this place where at one time? You were a lowly a writer for the town paper, and yeah, now you're sort of a celebrated writer. <laughs> I'm a writer, is what he said. <laughs> and I only have three hundred dollars. <laughs> it's a lot for a writer. Uh, no, it feels it feels wonderful. It does feels in this sort of a cyclical kind of. Uh, um, I was at the first one as a scruffy, you know, aspiring writer, um, looking at these otherworldly figures who had published books and not knowing. How that worked, uh, and I've I've done a couple panels at the book conference over the year, but this mm -hmm. is the first time I've ever coming back, you know, with a book of my own under my arm. So, um, it does feel it does feel special. I bet it yeah. does. An hour with Jim Dees uh, on a panel. Well, you get there's a price to pay for everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the stories that you will not tell. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's redacted. Yeah, uh, I love Jim's new book yeah. as well. Yeah, no. it's wonderful. So you say you keep a toe in journalism. So besides your fiction writing and your novel writing, you, you're still doing some journalism? On occasion. Um, it's more more rare than regular. But when I, you know, the fiction has always, and this is really not a verb, but I use it, it's always sort of parasited off the journalism, right? Whenever I've been doing journalism, there's always a, uh, the fiction writers behind me saying, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that for later. 
Um, so, you know, when, when I do get uh, ideas, um, part of the research process sometimes is to, is to you know, get a magazine to mm-hmm. send me somewhere so I can work on about it. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour in our final, third and final segment of today's show. Hope you're having a delightful Sunday afternoon wherever you are, whether you're in Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Louisiana, Arkansas, we're just glad that you have your rabbit ears on and you've joined us today for the Arts Hour. My guest today is Jonathan Miles, and Brother Miles is uh, uh, hails from Ohio and Nevada. They get Arizona. Out? Arizona. Close Wrong by. state. Yeah. Doggone it. I've been watching too much spring <laughs> spring training baseball, yeah. you know. But uh, lived in Oxford in the 90s, um, studied somewhat under the legendary Barry Hanna and, and Larry Brown, um, and then took off for the big city, the, the, the big shiny lights of, of New York and all that that includes and has been writing books and uh, journalism ever since. Uh, just finished a brand new piece, a novel entitled Anatomy of a Miracle, set in Biloxi, Mississippi, and what is the time period? It's contemporary. 2014. Yeah. 2014, yeah. yeah. So Kinda 2014, like 2015. Like, like now, yeah. 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 And uh, so anyway, he's out touring uh, the new the new piece of work, uh, signing books. Uh, he signed a big stack of them at Lemuria. For those of you in the Jackson area, go get one and uh, really enjoy this raucous ride. Uh, they're also at Square Books in Oxford and probably other places, maybe Turnrow and Greenwood. But uh, we're glad you're in town. Welcome back, Johnny. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It's a joy to have you in the studio uh, and to have you revisit Mississippi and to share with us uh, what you've been up to. So the novel that that we're talking about, the, the Anatomy of a Miracle, you say it's a true story. And what do you mean by it's, a true? It's true with an asterisk on it. Um, and, and, and what that means is this novel is written as if it were nonfiction. So it's written in a journalism style with an offstage, uh, journalism narrator. And what that means is that, you know, with the, with, you have your third person, uh, narration, but there's also quotes from the characters and, and you're seeing it through the lens of this, uh, investigative journalist. And I wrote it that way for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, one was that. I call it a true story with the asterisk in the sense that all novels from the beginning have always uh, sort of purported to be true in some sense. Now, in the early 18th century, they actually, that was very explicit. You know, Daniel Defoe wrote Robinson Crusoe and presented it as an actual poker-faced account of a real Marine sailor named Robinson Crusoe. Right. Um, but then, you know, fiction became uh, this idea that it was, there was an assemblage of fibs that add up to something true. We call that higher truth or fictional truth or allegorical truth. Um, so this was just sort of rip, going, ripping the onion skin back a little and uh, going back to that 18th century uh, idea of the novel as, as explicit truth, yeah. as, in a sense, fake news. <laughs> and that, you know, it's interesting because when I came up with this idea that I was going to tell this story in the voice of the journalistic uh, narrator... I did so partly because I thought it would be the most authoritative way to tell a story that had an obvious supernatural or, or incredible element. First person seemed a little too limiting because I wanted to 
talk about all the reverberations in the town and the world from this recovery. Um, third person on this, it seemed a little too godlike for me. It's mm-hmm. always seemed like a very godlike voice. And when you're talking, uh, when you have characters who are grappling with the existence, of the divinity in a in a novel, it felt a little disingenuous to be up there. <laughs> like, like, like um, but so I, you know, I came up with this curveball to tell it in the way like someone like Michael Lewis, you know, a nonfiction mm-hmm. writer like that would have would have told the story were it true. Um, but something strange happened while I was doing that, which is sort of the culture shifted seismically underneath my chair, right? Because this voice that I had conceived of as the most authoritative and reliable narrator, and we'll call that news for short, had been recast in the public imagination as perhaps the least reliable voice, culturally speaking, that being fake news. Hmm. And one of the things that that uh, added to the novel, besides sort of a sense of, of artistic panic, was a... A complexity about the the way we interpret and filter information, and ultimately, it's, it's one of the things I think this novel is about: um, why we give credence to certain stories, how our worldviews shape the way we filter our information, how we decide what is true or is it what we want to be true, mm. and. For so many of the people in this novel, um, you know that's what that's what their uh, their issue is. Now there are going to be people, and there already have been readers who are sort of discombobulated by this tone um, because there are elements of fact and there are elements of mm-hmm. fiction, and it's presented as fact. And uh, but I want the reader to do that. It, it's by design. I want the feeder, reader, the feeder, <laughs> the reader to feel the same unease that. The, the characters in the novel feel when they're trying to figure out, is this real? Is this true? What right. happened? Was this a hoax? You know. Huh. So, so the role of traditional journalism here has been changed. The, I mean, because the role has been changed. Journalism completely the, different. The perception has been changed. Oh, okay. And you know, partly that is uh, because of uh, various actors who have, in a sense, weaponized. The forms of journalism, mm. the propaganda. I mean, this is an old story. They've just gotten really good at it in the last three years, um, and partly it's a product of the internet. Right. I was going to say it's it, very hard to sort through what is legit and what's not, and so we're not really equipped, you know, um, as modern citizens, to take in 150 different uh, streams of information and try to filter them ourselves. Mm-hmm. So what do we end up doing? And that's, you know, this is this is this is, happens on the political right, this happens on the political left. We start sorting them by by what flatters or adheres to our worldview, what we want to believe. And that and then we find ourselves in these separate silos not of ideology, but of ideology and information. Mm-hmm. So that we we are claiming our own facts, right? Or in Kellyanne Conway's famous formulation, alternative facts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a very dangerous uh, and disturbing situation. You know? well, yeah, so the Third World War could be just a war of, of, of political silos yes, going yeah. at it on the Internet. Yeah, and, and that seems to be, and I've heard, I've heard our current situation described as a cold civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's fair. And I think yeah. there is in a, in a, a certain level of information warfare. That's happening on the internet. What role would Cambridge Analytica have played in the story, <laughs> which has just been rolled out to our reality? 
I mean, which is another yeah. whole layer of how right. information is sorted and used and well, there is there is a big internet component to the novel, and uh, there's there's a few plot twists in the novel, um, and you know, so I don't want to give anything away, but something sure. happens late in the novel where the people who have have made their decisions about whether Cameron's recovery, uh, what it was, are then forced to reassess, and in a sense, it gets muddy, and they and they reverse course, uh, and and that becomes uh and it becomes as everything seems to right now a political hmm. moment um and and of course it's fed on the internet there's there's a lot of facebook in this novel you right. know some twitter because this is how this is how these things metastasize right, right. exactly so what what is a what is the takeaway or some takeaways that you hope people will glean from this work of art this this piece of fiction what, what what's your point in other words yeah. <laughs> well you know novels don't don't have points don't have nor have point. shouldn't have a point but I, you know i think they're terrible vehicles for answers right yeah. i think what novels do best um is is to ask questions mm. you know milan kundera said that uh what a novel does is teach is teach people to comprehend the world as a question right. and i think novels are particularly suited for taking questions and deepening them and broadening them. And uh, it, and this is a phrase from Charles Johnson, you know, they take an idea and tabernacle it in flesh. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, but I think the, the central question, I think that, that I, I do want readers to act is to ask themselves possibly early on is what they would have made of this story. Had it been real, had they seen this in the news, mm -hmm. what they would have thought Cameron's recovery was about. And then following it to ask themselves, if they would have changed their opinion of it, um, and and perhaps to to ask them questions ab uh, about how they filter information mm -hmm. and how they process it and what they what criteria they use giving credence, um, right. yeah, to information. So the world of journalism that you entered in the 1990s is totally changed. Yeah, and is there a place for you? there now other than to write about it in fiction yeah no i think so i mean I, you know um I'm, I'm glad that uh that i i have been able to to make a living writing novels um what a blessing that is yeah. you know uh in every way um but it's also partly because the world of journalism has changed dramatically in the last especially the last 10 years you know when i entered the magazine world it was uh it was it was you know it was still the last glory days and um it has the internet has made a lot of changes mm -hmm. in the journalism world, and uh, and there's a lot a lot of the changes are financial, so uh, things are um, and not just financial. They're also just in terms of content. You know, some of the some of the great funk that used to be yeah. in the magazine world um, that that made me love magazines. Uh, it's much harder to find these right. days. Um, what, it's it's what, still what, out there. Where is funky journalism? Where's funky journalism? Uh, Have you, you seen know, any lately? Yeah, there's you know there's actually a lot on the internet. It's just right. finding it's it on is the very internet. difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's there's funky journalism that that still exists. Um, it's just uh, it it's just there's there's less funk. There's more space between the funk. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned making a living as a novelist. Uh, I would think people would be curious, like how does one do that? I mean, obviously you sell the books, you sign contracts, you 
you have to move on to the next one. Yeah. You, unless you've written one novel that uh, is on the top 10 bestseller at the New York Times for a many, many a week, you have to go right back to work probably while you're touring the existing book. Yeah. yeah. So what's next? Uh, but that's, that's sort of delicious, too. I mean, the, the sense that uh, it's because the next book is always it's always perfect in your head. Mm. You know, writing is such a process of of you have this perfect vision in your head and and the extraction from your head onto the page is always so clumsy and it's always so corrosive. And what you get onto the page ultimately is this this sort of uh, you know skinny approximation of mm-hmm. what was so beautiful in your head. Um, this part of the pain and the and the fun. Um, but you know, any artistic enterprise is always it's it's. It's never a particularly stable life, um, <laughs> but I never wanted a stable life. Stable how, life? How boring would that be? <laughs> Maybe the family, but yeah, they, they, yeah, they're probably used to it by they're now. They're used to it. Um, you know, daddy, daddy's got to go to his shack in the backyard and <laughs> and disappear. And one of the things, you know, my the, the wife and kids come down to Mississippi every summer for about six weeks. They stay uh-huh. on the coast. And, um, and honestly, I get about 80% of my, my year's work done. In those six or seven weeks that they're gone, when they're in so, Mississippi, yeah, yeah. you're working away. I'll hold up, in. I'll hold up a man's wonderful because I hold. I mean, I miss him, of course, but I hold up in my shack and and I'll start writing in the morning and I'll look up and I'll go, oh my god, when did it get dark? <laughs> and that's when and that's when you got the voodoo yeah, going. That's, yeah, well, that's I, when the magic is is actually happening. I say the point of life is to lose track of time. Yeah, when one has totally lost track of time and does not know what time it is or exactly where they are, yeah. for a moment, yeah, to me that is success. Yeah. yeah, and I would think that for a writer, that's that. That's the voodoo. Yeah, that's that's the zone. Jonathan Miles, a new book, Anatomy of a Miracle, available at all independently owned and operated bookstores in Mississippi. Please go out and get one and read it. And remember that this boy learned this in Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome to Mississippi once more. Good luck on your journeys and hello to the family. And we'll see you soon. It's so great to see you again. My pleasure.